Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 103 for the 2nd 3rd of March 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the planet Jupiter and claims that have been made about it that allegedly support young Earth creationism. All because someone is a creationist, a young Earth creationist or YEC to be specific, does not mean that they are stupid. There are numerous YECs who have advanced degrees in scientific fields of study. One of those is not Spike Psaris, who has written extensively on astronomy and produced a video series about how he thinks astronomy supports young Earth creationism. I'm going to go through some material from a free preview of that from his website in this episode. Now to start off with, I'm not entirely sure why Mr. Psaris, and actually I'm just going to call him Spike because I'm not entirely sure on the pronunciation, why he writes so much about astronomy, and why he tries to argue from the science of astronomy for his creationistic viewpoint. As you'll find out in this episode, he makes many basic mistakes, although many of those are common mistakes to young earth creationists. His background is this, taken from the Creation Wiki website, which took some of its information from the Creation Ministries International's website. Spike Psaris has a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering from the University of Massachusetts and has done graduate work in physics. For a number of years, he was an engineer in the U.S. military space program. He went into the U.S. military space program as an atheist and committed evolutionist and came out of it as a young earth creationist and a Christian. One thing that's slightly subtle from that biography is the whole has done graduate work in type of text. That usually means that you started graduate school and then dropped out. It could be for whatever reason, but it's sort of like saying, okay, I need to go to the grocery store to shop for a party I'm holding this coming weekend, and I go and I buy chips and then I leave. It's, you didn't really complete it. Now that's neither here nor there, but again, it sort of gives context and the whole has done graduate work in physics is somewhat meaningless at this point. Anyway, let's get right to the first claim, which is about Jupiter's rotation. Just like all the other planets, Jupiter confounds evolutionary models of our solar system. For one thing, evolution says Jupiter can't be spinning as fast as it is. The evolutionary model makes certain predictions about how fast the planets will spin. However, Jupiter exceeds those predictions. One recent article quoted an evolutionist who has studied this problem. He said, We came to the conclusion that if you accrete planets from a uniform disk of planetesimals, prograde rotation just can't be explained. The simulated bombardment leaves a growing planet spinning once a week at most, not once a day. This is a huge problem for evolution. Jupiter is not only the biggest planet in the solar system, it's also spinning the fastest. It spins all the way around on its axis in only 10 hours. How much energy do you need to spin up a planet this big to make it go this fast? The energy is enormous, and evolutionary models can't supply it. First off, I am not, beyond this, going to address the complete and utter non-sequitur about the evolution references that are in each and every single one of Spike's claims. It's almost like a nervous tick from young Earth creationists, but especially from Spike, the need to name drop this evolution thing into everything, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with the topic. 
With that out of the way, we've known how fast Jupiter has been spinning on its axis since at least 1835, so the question now is, how does it spin so quickly? The preliminary question, if we start from basics, would be, why does it spin in the first place? The effective basic one-liner is that the protoplanetary disk was orbiting the proto-sun all in the same direction, say clockwise, for example, from an arbitrary vantage point, and due to the differential rotation within the disk, a net spin was imparted into any condensing objects. That was a dense sentence. What it really means is that if you have a bunch of material all spinning around a central point, and then some of that material starts to condense in various spots in the disk, it's going to keep spinning in the same direction. It's going to be like a mini disk within the bigger disk, all spinning in the same clockwise or all spinning in the counterclockwise direction, again, depending upon your arbitrary vantage point in space. That brings us to the part of where the objects spin so quickly. This is the classic ice skater analogy. If you're spinning on the ice and you have your arms extended, you're going to spin slowly. If you bring your arms closer to your body, you will spin faster. That's because of the conservation of angular momentum. Now let's say that you put 20-pound lead weights, or 20-pound non-poisonous, uh, not mercury, that's poisonous, say 20-pound aluminum weights or 20-pound iron weights in your hands. If you now bring your arms close to your body, you're going to spin even faster than before because you're bringing more mass closer to the center, and conservation of angular momentum means that you're going to spin faster. In other words, the more mass you bring towards the center, the faster you're going to spin. Jupiter has a lot of mass. It has the most mass of any object other than the Sun in our solar system, or other than some fictitious planet X's. But anyway, it has the fastest rotation rate as well. Saturn, the second most massive planet, has the second fastest rotation rate. Neptune, which has the third largest mass of any planet, has the third fastest rotation rate. See a pattern? The paper that Spike references, or quotes from, in order to support his assertion that Jupiter couldn't spin fast is from Kerr from 1992 in a paper entitled, Theoreticians Are Putting a New Spin on the Planets. If you were to actually go and read the paper, it becomes pretty clear that it's an obvious example of a fairly common young Earth creationist tactic, quote mining, where they'll search for a line or two in pretty much any scientific paper or book or press release and use it completely out of context. In this case, the quote is, The simulated bombardment leaves a growing planet spinning once a week at most, not once a day. The main problem is that this isn't a naked announcement. The two teams at the paper cites have modified current models in order to explain how the planets can spin faster than once a week. In other words, the sentence that he pulled out was announcing the old problem, the context for the new discovery, that we have two teams that have figured out ways in our formation models to explain the faster rotation. The second paragraph of the paper states, quote, Neither group claims to know exactly what actually set the planets spinning so furiously, but both groups, Stony Brook's Jack J. Lissauer and David Carey, and Toronto's Luke Dones and Scott Tremaine, are ready with alternative scenarios. Lissauer and Carey favor a modified version of the small collision scenario, but Tremaine and Dones lead towards a more catastrophic mechanism, in which planets acquired their spins from a few giant impacts, or even one, late in their evolution." End quote. 
I can't go on to quote the paper verbatim because that's not the purpose of this podcast and it's not entirely completely legal. But the upshot is that the paper simply describes, in short, two small modifications, perturbations to the main planetary formation models that can better account for a preferred direction once you consider even more of the real physical dynamics that occur in a protoplanetary disk. And that was from 22 years ago. Regardless, Spike has not presented any case for why anyone should take seriously as to why Jupiter quote-unquote can't spin quickly under a quote-unquote evolutionary model, so at best this is an unsupported claim where the burden of proof is solely upon him to at least present reasoning rather than a simple claim, especially a sentence lifted out of a paper that says the exact opposite. Clearly, however, he wants you to make a god of the gap sleep to, well, god did it. The next claim has to do with Jupiter's composition, what its atmosphere is made of. Scientists have also been studying the chemical composition of Jupiter. We've had several space probes fly close by it lately, and the results have surprised evolutionists. Evolutionary models predicted that Jupiter would lack certain elements, argon, krypton, xenon, nitrogen, and others. But it turns out that Jupiter has lots of these elements. The results of this study were published in the scientific journal Nature. An overview of that article said, Jupiter is the largest of all the planets, but results in nature now reveal the embarrassing fact that we know next to nothing about how or where it formed. This second claim is at best misleading, at worst it's just sort of an outright lie. The main composition of Jupiter is molecular hydrogen, H2, at 89.8% plus or minus 2%. See the episode on scientific uncertainty, accuracy, precision, error bars, that kind of stuff. The secondary element is helium at 10.2 plus or minus 2%. Notice that these two add up to 100%. Now there is a very little bit of other stuff, but it's what we would call trace, meaning that there is very, very, very little of it there. It's sort of like you add a drop of chlorine to a giant vat of water. That chlorine is a trace element now in the water. In Jupiter's atmosphere, the main trace constituents are methane at 0.3 plus or minus 0.1%, ammonia at 0.026 plus or minus 0.004%, hydrogen deuteride at 0.0028 plus or minus 0.001%, ethane at 0.00058 plus an unimportant uncertainty percent, and water at 0.0. 0.04%, which varies with pressure. Looking at a recent paper, the amount of argon in Jupiter's atmosphere is about two and a half times the sun's, or about 0.0009% of the total composition. Krypton is at about 2.7 times the sun's, or 0.0004% of the total composition. Xenon, times the sun, or about 0.0004% the total composition. Nitrogen is three times the sun's abundance, or about 0.0003%. It's noted in the paper that the nitrogen amount is likely off, that the probe probably landed in a hot spot of nitrogen. Now, the point of me reading those 0.0000% is to point out again that these are very small constituents, they're very trace. It's not like... 50% of Jupiter's atmosphere is made of krypton, and we had no idea that it would be that much. They are tiny, but they are different from the sun. 
and they show a relatively significant enhancement over the solar abundance. And Jupiter is supposed to be reasonably like the Sun in its composition, right? Yes, but not totally. What I've noticed that creationists commonly fail to realize is that scientists want to make observations that disagree with their models. But rather than throwing those models away, they modify them in order to improve them, so that they can explain all of the evidence. That's what has happened since the determinations of the Jovian atmospheric composition over a decade ago. It's placed constraints on models of Jupiter's formation. Rather than make assumptions, we now have a legitimate constraint upon parameters, like where in the solar nebula Jupiter may have formed, or where the smaller pieces that combine to form Jupiter may have formed themselves. That's what real science is, making a model from current observations, then making predictions from that model, and if future observations don't match those predictions, then the model must be altered or replaced in order to be better able to account for the new observations. We can still build Jupiter's and planetary formation models, as opposed to evolution models. We just now have more constraints upon how, where, and from what they form. The next claim that Ceres makes is about Jupiter's core, the center of the planet. Also, the evolutionary model requires Jupiter to have a large core inside of it. This would have been necessary for Jupiter to form from the solar nebula billions of years ago. Unfortunately for evolution, a recent space probe measured the mass of Jupiter's core. The evolutionary model needs Jupiter to have a large core, at least 10 times the mass of our Earth. But we now know that at most, the core can only be three times the mass of Earth. It might even be smaller than this. In fact, the probe couldn't even confirm that Jupiter has a core at all. Jupiter does not match evolution's predictions. Possibly a reason why Jupiter's core does not match evolution's predictions is that evolution has nothing to do with the core, although I kind of said I would not get into this universe tick that he has. Anyway, uh, this claim is fairly silly at this point in time. Before the Galileo probe reached Jupiter in the 1990s, estimates of the size of the core of Jupiter were around 5 to 15 Earth masses. That's a large uncertainty though the actual value varied considerably based on what model you used and what you assumed. Again, we did not have good constraints from the Voyager Pioneer probes. Once Galileo reached Jupiter, it was able to take various measurements, and it being in orbit allowed various tracking stations on Earth to record its position. This allowed us to create a model of Jupiter's gravity field. This, along with Jupiter's moments of inertia, which are unimportant to get into in this episode, are needed in order to really constrain the models of how big Jupiter's rocky, solid core may be, or even if it has one. The current state of the science, however, is inconclusive. The measurements from a decade ago were not good enough to conclusively state whether or not Jupiter has a core, and how large it may be. The data generally indicate that the core can be no larger than 12 Earth masses, a far cry from whatever source Ceres used since that said the core can be a maximum of only three Earth masses. But the results from Galileo provide a few limits towards the size of the core, and so it is still not well constrained. I spoke with Fran Baganel, a research scientist where I work at the University of Colorado, and she literally wrote the book on Jupiter, or at least she edited it. She related to me a story about when all of the authors of all the various chapters got together with her to talk about certain bits of information. None of them could really agree on what the data yet showed about Jupiter's core. They fought over one of the illustrations and ended up leaving it with, effectively, a big question mark about the structure and transition to the possible core. 
Other than observations, a recent paper from 2008 models what Jupiter's core will be from first principles of physics, and it came up with about 14 to 18 plus or minus 6 Earth masses, but that's within the range of what the Galileo results show. But still, big uncertainties are attached to that number, until we get more data, of course. This would be from space probes, data from space probes, not from watching bacteria evolve in a lab, because this is space science, not evolution. The final claim that I'm going to talk about in this episode has to do with the formation of the planet itself. Scientists have studied how a planet like Jupiter would have formed from a disk of gas and dust, and the results have been devastating for the evolutionary model. Jupiter would have needed at least 10 million years to form, and that's being generous. Some scientists say it would take even longer than that. But these scientists also acknowledge that a disk of gas and dust wouldn't have lasted around our sun for that long. Many scientists believe that such a disk would have dissipated in less than 5 million years. This means that in the evolutionary model, Jupiter would have had no time to form. So, according to evolution, Jupiter shouldn't exist at all. Have you ever been sort of uh, driving down the highway and you say, okay, no, I am not going to rubberneck any more accidents. And then the next accident you see, you rubberneck, slow down, watch, and then move on. That's sort of how I feel right now with Ceres and his evolution thing. So um, with that said, this claim boils down to the idea that the solar nebula would disappear within 5 million years, but Jupiter takes 10 to 100 million years to form according to models. Obviously, this is a problem. But that's what happens when you take the extreme numbers on the one hand with the opposite extreme numbers on the other, along with outdated models. For example, we can take a look at a publication from 2004, Formation of the Giant Planets. The author clearly states that the protoplanetary disk will dissipate within 1 to 10 million years, so yes, the 5 million years number that Ceres quoted is reasonably accurate and drives with the latest science from a decade ago. However, this is not a gotcha moment for the young Earth creationists. It's not as though they caught us astronomers with our proverbial pants down mooning them, that we didn't realize that this is a contradiction. We do. And yet again, this simply serves to place further constraints on how planets can form, and new models have come out of it. The main model of forming planets is referred to as the core instability model, and it takes 6 to 8 million years to form a nice-sized gas giant planet around the location of Jupiter. A possible problem. Then there's the disk instability model, which is somewhat poorly modeled but promises to form planets somewhat faster. This is still a very active area of research, and the state of the art can change over the course of just a few years, a grad student's tenure. Case in point, there was a grad student in my program who was four years ahead of me when I took the planetary formation class my third semester of grad school. He sat in the back of the class. I asked him why he should be working on his thesis research not sitting in class, and he said that the field has changed so much in the four years since he took the class last that he wanted to see what the people were discussing now. An example is yet another model, which proposes a diffusive redistribution of water as one of the primary mechanisms of forming Jupiter, and they can form Jupiter's core within 100,000 to 1 million years. Or there's another model, which forms the gas giant planets by concurrently accreting, that means bringing together both solids and gas at the same time, and these are generally thought to accrete separately, but maybe that's a bad assumption. 
it can form Jupiter and Saturn in 1 to 10 million years, which is the time span that the previous models said that the disk of gas and dust should dissipate. So again, this acts to constrain our models and make us think of other ones and re-examine the assumptions that go into the models that we have. Of particular interest in planet formation, to be honest, is how Uranus and Neptune form, rather than Jupiter. All models require significantly longer timescales for them because they are farther from the Sun. The fastest I've seen still requires two times as much time to form them as opposed to Jupiter and Saturn, but they have to form while there's still enough material in the solar nebula left. The very first line of a 2002 paper by Thoms, D-H-O-M-M-E-S, Duncan and Levison states, quote, the outer giant planets, Uranus and Neptune, pose a challenge to theories of planet formation, end quote. Even though this was written over a decade ago, it still somewhat holds true today. They do pose challenges, and researchers are actively trying to figure out how they can form given these constraints. New clues can come from studying exoplanet systems, which have, over the past 20 years or so, led planetary scientists to realize that early solar systems are less stable than we thought, and planets can migrate considerable distances within a solar system. This is why astronomers welcome these challenges as opportunities to learn more about the universe around us, and how we tie together disparate parts of astronomy to try to figure out the big picture about what's going on, and you never know where the next breakthrough may come from. That is, unless we just throw up our hands and turn to a young Earth creationist model, which is ultimately what Mr. Psaris wants you to do. From all of this, many common young Earth creationist tactics are made pretty obvious, such as quote mining, data mining, half-truths, got the gaps, and ignoring more recent scientific advances, all within less than a three minutes or so of video, which of course is part of a 13-minute free sample of a two-part DVD series, each about two hours long. As is the case with most pseudoscience, when it's not supported by the data, you have to fall back on bending things to make it all fit. If it were supported by the data, then it would be science, not pseudoscience. Spike did this by pointing out apparent observational evidence that seems to conflict with the, quote, evolutionary, end quote, picture of Jupiter. The problem with this is that astronomers know about these problems, if they're problems at all, and we actually use them rather than ignore them in order to refine models of how Jupiter formed and has changed through time. All because Jupiter's atmosphere has three times more nitrogen than the Sun does not mean that astronomers are going to suddenly throw up their hands in despair and change their views to reflect that of young Earth creationism. But, for $15 for each DVD entitled What You Aren't Being Told About Astronomy, Volumes 1 and 2, that's what Mr. Psaris is going to try to convince you of. A bit of feedback in this episode, related to two episodes ago, episode 101, the NVIDIA-created crop circle. Bill Hudson, who was a guest on episode 62, lives in the area where the Chular Barley Field crop circle was created. He sent me several links to local news sources, saying, quote, Local coverage at the time reported that neighbors had seen the people in the field with flashlights and ladders. Also, there were some claims made about how the farmer wouldn't have allowed it because it would destroy the crop but the barley was a cover crop, which means that it was grown for the purpose of being plowed under between cash crops. Bill also pointed to a video on YouTube, put out by NVIDIA, which shows why they made it and who they hired to make it. 
I'll post these links in the show notes for this episode 103. For the puzzler, I'm going to defer to probably next episode um, in order to give you more time to think about how we could determine, possibly philosophically, whether something is Earth-made or not made by humans. With that in mind, just uh, one announcement this episode. This episode came out a little bit late because I had actually been writing an episode, written the episode, and then realized I had already pretty much completely covered it already in the episode on quantum nonsense. So I had to dig through and come up with a new episode, and then I had roofers at the house, and it was very loud. Uh, With that in mind, I did post on Facebook, and I tweeted with my pseudo-astro account through Twitter about the episode being a little bit delayed. So if you'd like to keep up to date on podcast tidbits and news, like when the next episode might be out, if it's going to be late, feel free to join. Sign up on Facebook, like the podcast, and all that other fun stuff. That wraps up this topic for the 103rd edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little bit at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also tweet me, at pseudoastro, or leave a comment on the page for the episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, or even the Facebook page for the podcast. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, even if I'm perpetually months behind in getting back to you. If you do have suggestions for topics, feel free to make them. I might already have them planned, I might not, or they might not be feasible. I'll let you know. Also, of course, as always, please write a review, rate the podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice, and you don't have to email me if uh, you're not sure if you can post about it on a forum. Go ahead, spread the love or the hate. Any publicity is good publicity. Mm